Hey everybody, and thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Real Talk. It's Lucas here, and I hope that today's episode informs and inspires you to have your own real conversations. As always, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Trivan, maker of trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at trivan.com. A huge thanks to them for sponsoring the show and making it possible. One other quick note before we get into today's episode is that if you are willing and able, if you could leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on any of the podcast networks or platforms that allow for it, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated as it helps get the word out there and lets people know what we're all about. So with that in mind, on to the episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Real Talk Podcast. I am uh, coming back. This is Lucas, of course, coming to you from our studio in Bimbrook, Ontario. And we are talking about a, I would say, an interesting topic, uh, but one that's also somewhat difficult and, and very personal for a lot of folks, talking about IVF, in vitro fertilization. And today's guest we have is Justina Van Manen. And I'll just read you a bit of her credentials and her bio. She works uh, for the CCBR, Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. And uh, she graduated from Redeemer University with a Bachelor of Arts in English, minoring in history and psychology. Uh, she is one of CCBR's presenters and currently works as the communications coordinator. She's written a number of books, one on abortion and the one that we'll be talking about today, uh, a bunch with Jonathan Van Maren, her brother, is Life Under Glass, The Ethics of Embryo Adoption. So if you're interested in that, we'll have the link down below. Uh, it's available on Amazon and probably most places books are sold. So if you're interested, please check that out. And without further ado, uh, welcome to the podcast. First of all, Justina, glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. So I'm excited to talk about this issue. Um, it definitely required some research on my part personally. I'll just be honest with the listeners, as this was not an area I was super uh, in tune with. And I realized that, as I mentioned off the top, it's very uh, <clears throat> personal. And uh, yeah, it's it's going to hit hit home in the lives of a lot of listeners. I think if anyone has struggled with infertility or uh, yeah, gone through the process of IVF or um, snowflake adoption, even on the other side of things as well, uh, there's a lot of ways people can be involved in this topic and we want to be sensitive to that, but also, yeah, not be afraid to talk about the different difficult issues surrounding this, this issue and the, uh, the moral weight of it as well. So I think first off, just to give people a primer on what IVF is and what we're dealing with here, uh, if you could uh, just lay it out for us, Justina, what are we dealing with when we talk about IVF? What is this process like? And maybe get into a bit of a history of it as well, if you can. Yeah, so IVF is basically a form of third-party reproduction. In a lot of cases, it's been held up as the gold standard of the fertility industry um, for those who have ended up in fertility clinics because they struggle with infertility. Um, I'm sure you've heard this word. Um, doctors often push it pretty quickly. So basically what it is, is in vitro fertilization. So in vitro actually means it's, it's Latin and it's created in glass or within the glass. So it's basically when a woman's eggs are harvested um, and then a man's sperm and they're put together in a Petri dish um, by scientists and fertilization occurs there. In some cases, which is becoming more common, they actually take a sperm and an egg, carefully select them and inject the sperm directly into the egg. So that's happening more often now. Um, 
But basically how it started and how it often still happens is it's just a number of eggs and a number of sperm put together in a dish and that's where fertilization happens. Um, so yeah, obviously in that, in that camp, as Christians who believe that life begins at fertilization, we know that new human lives are created at that point because once fertilization has occurred, a whole distinct living human being comes into existence. After that um, point, when the embryos are created, um, they wait usually generally about five to six days and allow the embryos to grow and develop, um, some of which, many of which often don't continue to develop. Um, and so then they pass away, they're discarded. Um, and then the ones that do continue to develop, um, if there's you know one or two, they'll be transferred directly into their mother's womb at that point. Um, and if there's any embryos that have not been transferred, so there was more than one or two healthy embryos created, those embryos will be frozen in case the couple decides to go through the process again, or if, as is also often true, that the first transfer is, is not successful, that the babies are unable to implant um, in the uterine lining, and then they also uh, pass away in a very early miscarriage. So that's kind of the whole of what IVF is. Does that make sense before I talk about the history? or is yeah, the, yeah, that makes sense to me for sure. Yeah, please go okay, ahead. Perfect. Okay, yeah. So that's just the basic, the basic outline of of how that works. Um, it basically, the, so the first test tube baby uh, was named Louise Brown. She was born in 1978 in the UK. Um, obviously, this was this happened after years of experimentation. People had been trying to achieve this for quite some time. And for Canadians, um, the first IVF clinic uh, was formed in Quebec in 1980. Um, and then in 1982, the second one um, was created in BC. And actually the first, the first test tube baby, as they called them then, um, in, in, was born in British Columbia in 1983. So just to kind of going back in that history, I think it's important to point out. So we're dealing with um, about four decades of, of in vitro fertilization, four decades where children have been created through this process. And so as we begin our discussion about this, I think it's really important to acknowledge that while we're talking about a serious ethical issue, we need to talk about the things, the difficult things surrounding IVF, that we affirm the value of all of the children that have been created in this way. Um, there's many different ways that children can be created. We know that not, not all ways are equal. For example, we would agree, I would assume that the ideal way for a child to be created is through an act of love um, with a between a husband and a wife. But children have also been conceived through violence, um, through sexual assault. They've been conceived through one night stands, so through lust. Um, but ultimately, if we if we brought all of these children forward, we would say they're all equal human beings. How they came to be may not be considered equal, um, but they are equal human beings um, created in the image of God. So I think that's really important to mention because there are in the United States alone, estimated about, of, of around 1 million um, children frozen through IVF. So hundred um, for about a million frozen embryos, which means that through this process, there's been millions of others who have been created, um, many who have been transferred, many who have passed away and many who have been born. So that means that there's millions of people who have gone through this process, millions of people who know people who have gone through this process and have been born in this way. So. I think it's really important to start right from the beginning and and talk about how, you know, infertility is really, really difficult. Um, and while we, we say that not everything we do in sit in this situation might be ethical, um, it's important to affirm the value of those children. 
So going, going forward from that, um, we're, we're into about four decades of this. And for a, quite a long time, it was like super unregulated in Canada. So there was there was no parameters of what was okay, what was not okay. Because, I mean, in the beginning, it was quite experimental. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, there started to be some concerns about that and some discussions. And in 2004, um, they passed a Bill C-6. So it's called, uh, called the An Act Respecting Assisted... An act respecting assisted human reproduction and relate um, and related research, and basically what it did is just kind of it really focused on the rights of donors, um, people who have donated sperm or donated egg or uh, eggs, or in a lot of cases it's better um, terminology to say they sold their sperm or they sold uh, sold their eggs. But yeah. those people, you know, especially as time goes on and there's more children conceived, not just through you know, a, a husband and a wife using their eggs and their sperms through the process of IVF, but someone whose eggs aren't healthy or whose sperms sperm isn't healthy um, have used a donated sperm or a donated egg. Um, and what are the rights of the people who have donated their genetic material and what are the rights of the children conceived through this process? Because um, many of the people who have donated their genetic material want to remain anonymous. So this act really went into that and it actually kind of ended up saying that the the rights of the child to know were not more important than the rights of someone to want to remain anonymous. So at this point, it's still up to the donor whether or not they reveal if reveal who they are to any potential offspring. Um, and then they also taught, um, actually, it's also illegal in Canada to do gender um, specific testing for IVF. So the doctors, if they're doing any type of genetic testing, which they're allowed to do for certain diseases, so they can find out the gender of the child, but they're not right. allowed to tell the parents. Is that um, the case? Is, is that the case? Is that the case in the States as well? Or no, no, it's not. No. Okay. So actually a lot of people go to the States to get that testing done. Because wow. um, it's also a bit ironic, right? Because in Canada, you're allowed to, okay, so you get pregnant with that child, you wait until you can get um, an, uh, your ultrasounds and get testing done that way, find out it's the girl or the boy that you don't want, and then you can get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Canada, really, it's, 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 it is definitely a little bit ironic how that situation works out, because we are allowed to do sex selective abortions at this point. Um, but yeah, we're not allowed to screen um, for gender with our embryos, which is obviously a good thing. Um, in the UK, um, UK and actually other parts of Europe, there's uh, like a lot of countries also who don't allow for that. There's also countries who don't allow for um, any type of genetic testing or screening for you know chromosomal abnormalities or things like that. Right. Um, so there are more parameters in Europe than there is in North America. Um, we don't we don't really have much other than what I mentioned for gender for Canadians. Um, but it's super easy for us to cross the border and and do it there. Um, more expensive in a lot of cases because Ontario pays for the first a round of IVF. Um, and some other provinces, such as Manitoba, they offer some tax some tax breaks. Um, but in other provinces, it's not funded at all. So crossing the border is just as easy, and you could still get that testing done. Um, so uh, further concerns with IVF has been more regulated. Um, more within the medical, so not legally, but more within like the medical community, there's been a real push to uh, minimize the number of multiple pregnancies that occur through IVF. 
mm-hmm. um, because multiple pregnancies are obviously more dangerous for both mother and babies. They're, they're high risk pregnancies. Yeah. So they have worked hard to reduce that. So just transferring one embryo at a time rather than multiple, like in the past, you know, you've heard stories of four, four babies being born, five babies born at a time because mm-hmm. they transferred so many embryos and actually, and the potential obviously for these embryos to split into identical twins. So people might transfer, you know, two embryos and end up with four babies. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's, that that's kind of, that's really kind of where we're at. We don't really have much. There isn't a huge amount of discussion, I think, about regulations at this point. And, mm-hmm. and in, in some cases, in some, some articles and stuff that I've read, um, they actually believe it might go the other way. There's been a lot of push by people going into IVF clinics to allow for things like testing for the gender of the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, so because there's a lot of pressure from the couples going in and, and paying the money, some clinics are, are feeling the pressure to, to cave to that. Yep, um, right. So that, that's, that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of where we're at in Canada. Okay. So yeah, obviously there's incredible uh, moral significance to, uh, to this whole process. Uh, I actually kind of want to pick up on something you said there about the trend towards uh, reducing the number of embryos they try to uh, implant. Um, Maybe this is a, a silly question or naive question, but I think maybe, I, at least I have it for now, I'll be honest. Does it change the ethics of the situation at all if it's a single embryo at a time? Like I know historically this has not been a very successful approach and it's a costly endeavor. So people don't tend to do this more of a pragmatic approach. Is there a case for uh, one at a time type approach and does that change the ethics of the situation at all? Yeah, I think that's a, a really important question, actually, um, because I think it's it's somewhat two separate issues um, in the sense that a lot of Christian ter- churches um, will 100% agree with with the, the things that we're saying are unethical when in regards to if we're endangering the babies or not, right? Mm-hmm. So in the cases where, um, in, in most cases, right, they harvest as many eggs as they can, they fertilize as many of these eggs as they can, to create as many embryos to, you know, hopefully end up with a number of healthy embryos. Um, in most cases, that means transferring embryos and and freezing others. Um, and in in some of these cases, you know, a couple conceives one two children and they're done. They still have embryos in the freezer. These embryos can be donated to to research um, or discarded, left to die. Um, in most cases, I would say most churches agree that that's that's not ethical. Um, we can't can't treat human beings in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say that's the first side of the issue. Um, is okay when we're talking about endangering preborn children. Um, most people would agree. Okay, you know we, we can't do something like that. But when it comes to the the other side of it, you're right. People will say, okay, so what if? We just create, you know, we take one egg, we take one sperm, we create one baby or one or two babies and transfer those. So we're not refreezing, you know, we're not freezing any human beings. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't have any, you know, extra, as people would say, or excess embryos. Um, It's just that one thing. Um, The first thing I would say to that is that it's not, it's not like 
likely to happen. A lot of clinics don't like to do it. It is definitely possible. And I know people actually who have done it. Um, so it's definitely possible, but clinics are, will really warn against that. I would say if they do it, what they would hope to do is, is harvest as many eggs as possible and then just do the fertilization one by one. Um, but that would, that would come down to the, the question that people really struggle with, which would be, is it moral to separate uh, sex and procreation, mm -hmm. right? When God created male and female, we weren't able to separate sex and procreation, right? Sex is what made babies. We weren't able to do any of this, uh, you know, stuff, taking sperm, taking eggs and creating a child outside of that context. And so I think that's the moral question that needs to be asked. If, if that was what God's design was, are we allowed to go against that? Um, I think, and I think that question comes down to whether or not we're commodifying human beings. So are we mm -hmm. treating people as people or are we treating them as products? Um, so so that, that's kind of where I would start on that. I don't know what you're thinking. Yeah, if I could... If I could jump yeah. in there. So okay. when, when you guys sat down to write your book on this topic, um, obviously, yeah, kind of a tricky subject to, to write a book on what biblical principles, uh, did you lay out or go searching for to kind of, uh, help frame your writing for this book? What, what biblical principles are at play when we're talking about IVF or, or surrogacy or separating sex and procreation, things like that. Okay. So the, the book that, that my brother and I wrote on the ethics of embryo adoption is, is a little bit um, different from the specific um, question of IVF. Um, okay. So <laughs> what we, we were going to mention, we've, we've talked about the book that Stephanie Gray Connors wrote. So we would have considered writing a book on IVF as well, but Stephanie uh, happened to do it before we did. So she actually was the founder or the co-founder of the organization that I work for, the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Um, she lives in the States now with her husband and her, her little girl. Um, and she tackled this, sub uh, this subject and she wrote a book called uh, Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionately, Compassionately About Infertility and IVF. Um, and she does a really, really good job of outlining what IVF is and, and how it can be problematic. Um, so when, when we're talking about the biblical principles, I think, yeah, the IVF question and the embryo adoption are somewhat distinct. That's just kind of why I wanted to clarify that. Um, but the biblical principles that we're talking about when we're talking about IVF specifically um, basically falls under those two things again. So it would be first, if we're endangering the lives of children, which is obviously never okay. And then the second, second question would be if we're allowed to separate something that God created and intended to remain together. So namely sex and sex and procreation. Um, when we create a child outside of the context of, of the sexual union where it was meant to happen, that child is in, in danger. So when it's created in the lab, that's not the natural context and every process, it isn't basically isn't safe um, for several reason. So the first um, one that we would say is that when a child is created in the natural context and, uh, you know, through, through the sexual union of a husband and his wife, the, the healthiest sperm 
is the sperm often that reaches the egg. And if this isn't the case, um, we know that there's there's a lot of very early term miscarriages that we never that we never find out about. We're actually not able to determine how many happens. But the mystery of that and the sacredness of that is left to God, right? So, so God is the author and creator of life. Mm-hmm. And so it, when we take it out of that context and into our own hands, that can endanger that can endanger the children that are created. I don't know if you want to jump in there. Yeah, th- that does make sense to me. And yeah, sorry, I, I'm not saying you have to tackle a whole broad spectrum. I know you guys were more specific on the embryo uh, adoption side of things. Um, hmm. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying about about the separation of yeah the act of of sex and, and procreation. Um, it's still yeah, it's still a tricky topic. I think overall, do you want to get into uh like so when we go down this route, I guess into kind of build off what uh, Stephanie talked about a bit in her book too. Uh, kind of the farther away, this is the gist, at least what I received. The farther we go away from God's intended design which would be, you know, the procreation, uh, procreation apples through sex, uh, the more problems kind of arise. Uh, it, it's seems to me like IVF is kind of sold as like, okay, well, if you can't have it naturally, here's a good secondary option and we can help you out just a little bit of magic and science, whatever. And boom, here's your, here's your kids. Are, are there risks at play that are kind of being, uh, downplayed by, uh, by doctors, uh, recommending IVF and, do you think women know or what they're they're getting themselves into if they go down this route? Okay, so again, I, I would I would probably separate that a little bit. The first the the about the the many different things that can happen um, in inviting a third right. It's a form of third party reproduction. It's inviting a third party into essentially what's supposed to happen um, between you know a husband and wife um, and and their sexual union. Um, when when we invite a third party into that, that there is leaving room for human error. Um, and there has been cases where, you know, the wrong man's sperm fertilized someone's egg. So they discovered that, you know, they they carried this child to term, had their baby, and suddenly realized, okay, like this baby is showing characteristics that don't belong to either of us. What does that mean? Done genetic mm-hmm. testing and realizing that it was, it was there was a mistake made by the clinic, but I mean, what kind of devastating mistake is that right for their family? Um, There's been cases where, you know, the, the wrong baby has been transferred into, into a woman. Um, So basically cases like that. um, And those are ones that we're talking about specifically when we're, when we're even just talking about a husband and a wife. Um, That's not going into, there's a lot of cases where, it's not just a husband's sperm and a wife's egg that they introduce a donor sperm or a donor egg. So the child is genetically related to only one of their parents, um, which leads into a lot of other questions, which we kind of touched on briefly already. But, you know, what are the rights of the child to know about their genetic history um, and, you know, who provided half of the genetic material that make up who they are? Um and you know the questions of same-sex couples. Um, in the case of, of two women, obviously that would mean that they would have a, a sperm a sperm donor. That doesn't necessarily mean IVF. In some cases, it just means intrauterine insemination. Um, but for the case of two men, it it always means in vitro fertilization and, and going one step further, introducing surrogacy into it, right? Because obviously they can't carry mm-hmm. 
gestate their own child. So there's like a whole, uh, people might say Pandora's box when you start getting into this. And when you start getting into that and you start seeing how far things have gone, that does make you start to wonder, right? Is if we were supposed to meddle with these things in the first place, um, if we were ever supposed to be involved in creating the lives of other human beings, um, that that's kind of the one side. The other side that I think you kind of mentioned it specifically to women, like do women know what they're getting into? And I think, I think yes and no. Um, having struggled with infertility myself and knowing what it means to really, really want a baby, you're not always as concerned about the health risks as you should be um, of what it means to take certain fertility treatments. Um, so I think in some cases, maybe a woman is is told by her doctor that something like egg retrieval, for example, um, could, can have certain health risks, risks, and she might just decide that that she doesn't care. And the, the industry obviously is going to be like, well, she's an adult; she's consenting to this. Yeah. Um, but 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 obviously, no, there is some some decent health risks, which with um, basically it's what a woman has to do to retrieve eggs is, you know, for, for a man, they produce multiples, multiple sperm at, at one time. So that doesn't make things difficult, but for women, generally speaking, only one egg, one, two, two eggs um, mature at a time. When with IVF, you know, that's not good enough. They want to have many eggs to increase the chances of success. So what that means is they use hormones to overstimulate your ovary to mature many more eggs at a time. You know, at some cases, you know, they've harvested up to 30 eggs. So for a woman who's not supposed to produce that many, right, you're only supposed to produce one, um, in, in some rare cases, two eggs, that's obviously doing some crazy things to your body. So some people develop, you know, the, uh, what's it called? Um, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, um, which if it's treated, which is basically when your ovaries start swelling up um, to very large, some cases like the size of cantaloupes, um, it can be very painful. Um, If it's treated right away, in in a lot of cases, it, it can be remedied quite quickly, but if it's not, that can mean irrevocable damage to your reproductive system. Um, and so, yeah, so ba- basically the, the process definitely has a lot of extra weight on, on the woman and what she has to, to do to make this happen. So I think, um, and if actually I, I could recommend a documentary, um, called exploitation and okay. that talks specifically about, um, women who have donated their eggs. So not specifically using their eggs themselves for in vitro fertilization, um, but donating their eggs to other couples to use for that purpose. Um, and what's there, there's been many, many, many stories of women who after going through this process actually weren't able to conceive any children after that because of what the hormones did to their body. Um, there's also some proof that it can cause cancer. Um, but all of that is to say, we're not actually we don't have a lot of knowledge and a lot of research done about the side effects of what this can do to, to a woman's body, because we're not looking for it, right? The big, you know, big fertility, it's a huge industry. You know, there's a huge amount of money involved here. And then there's also the people who are asking for it, right? The people who very, very much want a child, which is a good and natural desire. Mm -hmm. Um, 
they want a child. And so they're asking for this, they're paying for it. People don't want to know about the risks involved. And so that there's actually a, a real lack of research as well. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's a, <laughs> that paints a bit of a grim picture there. We have a desperate clientele. It would make sense to me just thinking broadly, like people tend to have kids later and later, which means they generally run into more and more issues surrounding infertility. Um, yeah, not to mention just, I think there's been a general rise in infertility with maybe some of the foods we eat nowadays too, uh, plastics and certain foods. I'm not an expert. These are just things I've heard, but, uh, okay. So that's, I guess that's the one side of it. Uh, if we could transition to looking at it from the other side of the industry, um, in terms of snowflake adoption, embryo adoption, um, can you explain to us how that process works, first of all? And then uh, secondary to that, maybe explain how uh, this process can be done with an eye to sort of, uh, like, ideally, it doesn't have to exist. But since this big fertility industry exists in the first place, how do we ethically proceed in, in this arena in terms of embryo adoption as Christians? Right. Okay. So in, in kind of finalizing, tying up what we were saying about IVF, um, you know, the first problem being whether or not, you know, we, we can create children, put them in danger. Um, the second place, you know, being whether we can separate sex and procreation when, when God meant them to be together and whether or not we can buy and sell humans, right? Are we commodifying children? Do we believe that we have a right to children to the point where we can create them, we can pay for them to be created, we can essentially buy them as we're buying a product rather than receiving them as a gift that God gives to us? Now, all of that is obviously saying that infertility is a really, really difficult cross to bear. Um, speaking from personal experience, that's something that's really, really hard and grieving the loss of a biological child is a very real thing. Um, so that that's kind of tying up, you know, the ethical concerns with IVF. And what's happened with that, with this industry, is they've created millions of these children um, that are now in freezers across North America. Um, Sorry, I shouldn't say millions. There's some estimates that say a million in the United States. We don't have really accurate reporting to go off of in Canada, so we wouldn't know how many are here. Um, but there's children in freezers. So what are the what can we do? So if we're Christians, and and we believe that life begins at fertilization, so obviously that's where we began um, as working for a pro-life organization. Mm -hmm. Life begins at fertilization. So we know that a whole distinct living human being comes into existence at that point. Um, and we know that as Christians, that that child is created in the image of God. So we can't, we, we need to treat them with respect and the dignity that they have inherent to the fact that they're human beings. So we have these children in freezers. Now, for some people, they would say, um, okay, so you know, what are, what are we, yeah, what are we going to do with them? So many people who have done IVF, either they've completed, they say they can, they have completed their family. So they don't want any more children. Um, so however many they've had, they say no more, we're not going to have any more of these, these babies, other people for health concerns, right? For example, a woman might've needed to have a hysterectomy. Um, she didn't know that those health concerns would arise. They did. They still have children in the freezer. What can they do? Um, so the options that are presented are, you know, first, you can simply leave them in the freezer indefinitely. Um, so for couples who have 
um, embryos frozen, they need to pay continuing fees to the clinic. It's usually annual fees to keep those children frozen. Um, the second option would be to donate them to research. There's obviously a big industry for embryonic stem cell research. Um, so people people definitely have donated, just donated their what they would call their extra embryos to uh, to that. And mm -hmm. the third is to discard. So people can just basically put the embryos in an, in an environment where they cannot survive and, and allow them to die. So in some cases, that's actually been, you know, people have transferred the embryos to their uterus at a stage in their cycle where they know that the baby won't be able to implant. So their uterine lining is, you know, either, you know, just been shed. So it's not thick enough for the babies to implant. Um, as a way to sort of allow them to naturally die, they would say other people just, they take them out of the freezer, allow them to die there. So those are the first three options and the options that we most often talk about, which I think as Christians, we would say that those are problematic. Mm -hmm. um, it's dehumanizing to leave children in the freezer. Um, we can't just donate human beings to be researched on um, and basically experimented on until they die. Yeah. And third, to just essentially um, put children in an environment where they can't survive. So killing them, um, those are not ethical options. Um, and then the fourth option would be to place your embryos for adoption. I think there needs to be a conversation about that. I think that can be also a bit two pronged. It's a, it is a complicated issue. I know I keep splitting things up here, but some people will just simply say to their fertility clinic, okay, we don't, um, we don't want these babies anymore. Um, so if there's a couple who needs an, an embryo, you can give them our embryo kind of thing. They have no involvement in it. The clinic picks and chooses. Um, so essentially that would, what, what we would call embryo donation, which I think, again, we could find problematic because it's commodifying a child, sure. right? um, yeah. buying, selling, um, not treating them as human beings. Whereas the other the other side of that would be parents who place their embryos for adoption. Um, so the first agency to facilitate embryo adoptions was uh, Snow, uh, well, the Snowflake Embryo Adoption Program is what it's called, but it's Nightlight Christian Adoptions in the United okay. States. Um, so they started facilitating adoption. So that's using the adoption model. Mm -hmm. which is child-centered. And I think that's the really big point um, that also differentiates embryo donation from embryo adoption. And that's embryo donation is focused on the parent who desire a child, whereas adoption is child-centered and it's focused on a child who needs a home. And that's even when someone who's, you know, struggles with infertility and longs to have a child, when we look into different forms of adoption, we always need to be focused on you know, the child that needs a home. And that's why, so that's why Nightlight, for example, um, and that's the agency I know the most about, um, that's why they ensure that couples doing embryo adoption need to have a home study, need to give full medical histories, need to get criminal record checks, all of the normal processes that happen through a traditional form of adoption, ad adoption of a born child, you know, domestically, um, through CAS or through international adoption, you know, you need to go through that rigorous process. Mm -hmm. And so there's agencies, not just Nightlight that do that, that ensure that we're going through an adoption process. We're treating 
the preborn child as the living human being that it is. So that that would be how I would explain what embryo adoption is. If I can jump in for a second. Okay, so uh, just so for anybody who's just listening, I, I don't have a uh, video on this one, so that's why we're kind of doing the jump in, jump out. Should have explained that up top. Um, question for you on the embryo adoption then. So we talked about earlier on just normal IVF, just trying one at a time or one or two at a time while it's being done more is still not always successful. Um, how does that work when it comes to embryo adoption? I would guess it would take multiple times or is it more successful for some reason? Um, no, no, you can't say that it, it it's it wouldn't be considered more more successful uh, than IVF. I I think in most cases the success rates would be similar, um, but there's a lot of different factors in at play with embryo adoption. So for for IVF, generally speaking, what they try to do is transfer what they would call fresh embryos. So they allow the embryos to grow to day five or six. At that point, they've timed it so that the woman has been going through um, the different processes, processes to ensure that her uterus is ready to receive these children. They transfer the children and then, you know, wait essentially to see if they will implant in the uterine lining. Um, but these embryos, in, in a lot of cases for IVF, they're, they have not been frozen. Um, now, obviously, we've, we've gotten a lot more advanced in our technologies as well. Um, so when you do embryo adoption, on the other hand, um, you can be adopting embryos that have been frozen, you know, for 10, 15. At this point, there's actually been, you know, up to like 20 years old. Wow. Um, they've been frozen for that long. And that does have some effect on, you know, how healthy these embryos are and, and it, it weakens their chance of survival. So there's all of those factors at play as well. Um so, I, so yeah, you, you can't compare the success rates. Um, like it, it, it's a bit of an apples to oranges type of situation just because of, of how that comes about. Hmm. Okay. A couple of questions arise from that then. I realize we're branching off, but we'll come back to it. Um, so if they're frozen, do we have any good studies or any sort of science in terms of the effect of them being frozen for three years on end? I know, again, Stephanie talked about this a bit in her book as well. Um, but I don't know if there are any actual studies in terms of like the, it's, it's actually being aged over 10 years. It's just not developing. So a, do we know what happens with that? And then, well, well let's start with that. I have another question. We'll, we'll go from there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, there, there, it, there hasn't been a lot of studies of what exactly freezing does. There has been, so basically in the past, um, so earlier in the two thousands, um, they froze these babies through a process called basically just called slow freezing. Whereas mm -hmm. now more advanced, we do a process called uh, vitrification, which has been a lot more successful in freezing and thawing embryos to the point where it's almost um, as successful um, to IVF cycles have been almost as successful with using babies that have been frozen and thawed as to babies who have just been transferred right away after, have never been frozen. But for the children that have been slow frozen, the process is actually, um, it is different and it hasn't been as successful. Um, and actually what what's the case with, with this and some of the concern there is they're actually not training a lot of new technicians in how to thaw these babies. Um, so one of the problems might not even be their viability, but just the fact that there, 
most clinics will no longer accept children that have been frozen in that way. Um, because we just, we just don't do that type of freezing anymore. So I think to answer that question, right, we, we have developed, we've gotten better at how we freeze children and how successful we've been with thawing and refreezing. Right. Um, the, more, the more they've done it, the better they've gotten. Right. Yeah. Um, so, okay. so as to exact studies of, you know, success rates for how long children have been frozen, you know, there's been babies, you know, born who've been frozen for, you know, upwards of 20 years. Right. Um, so what exactly happens, you know, I, I know a couple who adopted embryos and they've, their doctor told them, okay, so, you know, they grade the embryos. They tell you, you know, which are the best embryos and which are the worst quality embryos, which is obviously really dehumanizing language. Yeah, really. Um, and yeah, so which embryos basically have the best shot, shot of survival. But then he actually said to them, he's like, yeah, but sometimes, you know, the lowest grade of embryo creates a very beautiful baby. So he said, <laughs> you know, right. So essentially like we don't actually totally know. Yeah. Um, we, we don't know what's, what's going to be the most successful and, and, and what's not. Um, so it's, it's tough to say, but there is some, you know, conversation in the medical community saying that, you know, the longer that a child is, is in the freezer, the more it affects whether or not they can survive. And obviously there's children who are in the freezer who simply pass away. So when they're thawed, they just never show any sign of life, right. which means they passed away while they were in the freezer. Gotcha. Hmm. Okay. Uh, let's, let's have you keep going with snowflake adoption and, and embryo adoption. We'll just keep explaining that process. Maybe you could tell us, um, yeah, like how widespread is this? Like, is this kind of a new in the last few years sort of thing, or has this been around, uh, for like kind of since IVF took off? Um, what's, what's the prevalency of this, uh, process? Hey, uh, no, no. So it hasn't been around, um, since, since IVF started, um, so we don't, we don't know exactly saying like, okay, what's the first baby, um, you know, for sure. But we know cases okay, so the organization that first started facilitating um, embryo adoption using the adoption model was, was the nightlight Christian adoptions. And that happened, I believe I should have, I should have known this date right, <laughs> off, right off my head. Um, I think it's 1997, but I oh, could wow. be wrong. I know, I know she's over 20, the, the, the first child that was adopted through this process. Her name is, is Hannah Streggy. Um, and so essentially what happened in her case is her parents, I think John and Marlene, I think their names are, so they were struggling with infertility. Um, and they were told that they weren't going to be able to have biological children naturally. So they just asked, so like, is it possible to adopt frozen embryos? And that question had never been asked before mm -hmm. um, in, in the States, at least for sure, not with the adoption model. Um, and so they did a lot of research, talked to a lot of, you know, to, to pastors. They talked to uh, Dr. Dobson of Focus on the Family, actually, um, of just questioning whether or not this would be ethical. And essentially what they came down to was the fact that if, you know, we believe that life begins at fertilization, if this is a living human being, then we need to treat them in the same way that we treat born children, which means that we're not allowed to discard them. We're not allowed, allowed to allow them to die. So, you know, we, it, it can be ethical to adopt them. So that's what 
the conclusion that they reached. Um, and then, you know, in conversations with Nightlight Christian Adoptions, they started the first, what they call snowflake adoption, um, their, their snowflake adoption pro program. So obviously they call these babies snowflakes um, yeah. because they're frozen in time. So that's just, and, and they use that analogy as, because, you know, each snowflake is precious um, and unique. Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of, that's kind of, where it started so it's been around for about you know going on two decades like that, that that's been happening so that was been more in the united states there's more organizations than just nightlight who do it um and now in canada there it's starting to be more um basically talked about and one of the reasons is actually very recent um the mclean's magazine published an article about embryo adoption written by a woman who placed her embryos for adoption hmm. so that's just been in the last the, that's been very recent um like in the last year or two that that article came out and then beginning family services they they've said that they've received a lot more interest in their embryo adoption program since then um, but there is also programs you know in canada the united states that involve embryo donation um, right. I know that there's, there's a program in Toronto who does that. So that's just, again, that's not on the adoption model. Yeah. Um, that's following more of a third-party reproduction model where you just go and they give you an embryo and it's not it's not based on the the rights of the child, essentially, for a family. So, right. I don't, yeah, it, it's, okay. <laughs> it's hard to say, like, exact specifics, but it's been around for quite a long time, but not a lot of people know about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I think through I think through snowflakes, they've just they've just reached over a thousand babies born um, through embryo adoption. Again, they've been around for for going on 20 years, if not 20 years. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so that's that's when they've they've begun. They've had about just over a thousand babies now born. But that number has really increased just in the last couple of years. So now there's actually quite a lot of babies born um, mm -hmm. every year through their program, but it's increased every year. So there wasn't a lot. It there wasn't a lot in the beginning, um, and that's not just because a, a lot of couples don't know um, that it's possible to adopt embryos, but also just the fact that there there was you know a lot of people who had embryos in the freezer had never considered placing their babies for adoption either. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's super cool that it's like start to take off and people are interested in, in taking part in that. I, I hadn't heard of it until probably about six months ago. I, a couple, I kind of know, uh, they went down that road and then they were able to have uh, their first child actually a couple months ago. So it's really neat to see, um, yeah, the Lord at work in this area of life as well. Uh, I guess just to come back to kind of, if I were to, to look at this broadly. So if, if we picture like a couple who is struggling with infertility, and they know about snowflake adoption. They know about IVF. They know, yeah, sort of um, the the problems with IVF. Um, what what would you say to them if they were looking at a choice between, well, we can use our own eggs and sperm potentially, and just try to go one or two and implant, and and you know try to be as ethical as we can and not waste any, versus. I know oasis is not a great word to use because it's kind of commodifies things, but forgive me for this at least. And then versus on the other side, if you had snowflake adoption where, okay, so you're, you're doing a, uh, probably you're doing a service by, uh, using, uh, an embryo that's already existing a life that's already existing. 
and trying to implant that in your womb. But of course, it wouldn't be your own um, flesh and blood or your own genetics, so to speak. Uh, what would you say to a couple who's looking at that choice and trying to figure out what would be right for them? Right. Well, the first thing I would say, obviously, is I have deep empathy for couples who struggle uh, with infertility. Um, I've, I've mentioned, right, that's my husband and, and my story as well. So I know what it's like to grieve the loss of a biological child. Um, and that's very real. It's it's a natural and a good desire to first to desire a child, but also to desire a child. That's the physical manifestation of the love that you share with your husband. Um, so I don't want to say that, you know, just adopt mm -hmm. because there's a process of many couples struggling specifically with infertility. I know that there's many families who have biological children and also choose to adopt um, children, you know, born children or otherwise. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking specifically to the couples who are struggling with infertility and need to, to grieve the loss of a biological child. And that can be really, really hard. Um, but I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we have a right to that child? Do we have a right to a biological child? And I think that can be a hard place to be at, right? Because, you know, as someone, you know, who, who doesn't have a biological child, you know, you look around at all of the people around you who are having a biological child, and it can be a real struggle wondering why that isn't happening for you. Mm -hmm. But in questioning that, you know, where, where should that find us, right? We should be, we should be praying. We should be asking God, okay, so this is happening in my life. And to what purpose is it happening? That doesn't mean I'm saying that everyone who struggles with infertility needs to adopt. I don't think that that's the case. I think everyone has, has a different path that they need to discern themselves through pr prayerfully. Um, but for those who, who are, you know, thinking, you know, considering, you know, that they want to have a child, the first step is obviously to, to grieve the loss of the biological child. And when we look at, okay, what are the options? What can we do? Um, I think we obviously need to differentiate between something that's trying to fix something that's broken. So obviously there are many things that people can do when they're struggling with infertility. So, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's just diet and lifestyle changes. Um, you know, sometimes it's working with different uh, fertility natural fertility options like NAPRO technology. Um, there's been a lot of people who've had success with that, which is just really carefully tracking people's cycles and, you know, again, changing certain things about lifestyle. Um, there can be the help of pharmaceuticals. You know, if, if a woman's not ovulating, there can be surgeries that need to get done. If a woman has, you know, blocked tubes, endometriosis, or if, you know, there's a blockage um, for, for, the, for the man, um, there's lots of things that can be done. And those are things that are fixing something that's broken, right? Infertility is the result of, of brokenness. Something's not right. Something's not working the way that it was designed to work. And we're allowed to address those things medically. But what those things are not doing is taking conception out of its natural context, right? They're not removing the, the act of sex from the creation of a child. So are we allowed to do actions like in vitro fertilization that does remove the, the act of sex um, from the creation of a child? Um, and, and that would be, I think it's, we really, really need to think about whether or not we are, we are taking something that wasn't meant for us. 
right? If when we say that children, and we see that throughout God's word, that children are a blessing and a gift from God. A gift is not something that we're allowed to take. A mm-hmm. gift is something that's freely given. Um, and whether or not God gives or withholds this gift is not necessarily something we can understand. Um, but I think that that that's something that belongs to him. So if we're going to take the creation of life outside of its natural context, I think there's some real concerns with that. So even if we're just creating one child, we're still creating a child. We're inviting a third party into that union, essentially, right? A scientist is -hmm. going to take an egg and a sperm and create a child in the sterile environment of a lab which was never meant to be, right? God designed that a child be created through an act of love. That's something that's beautiful. Creating a child in a lab is is very, very different from that. Um, And then the fact that, yes, we have to watch if that child can grow and develop. In many cases, that child is screened to see if they have, you know, certain diseases. I would say, yes, couples can be very clear saying, you know, we don't want any genetic screening. We only want, you know, one baby or two babies to to be created. And I I can totally understand where that's coming from, but I also would caution that when you're when you have someone else who's involved in this, someone who doesn't necessarily feel the same way that we do, obviously doesn't have a, a moral issue with the creation of life, and in many cases grades embryos, destroys mm-hmm. embryos, discards embryos. Can we trust that person with our child? Can we trust that industry? with our children and that's that's i think another question that we need to ask even if there's only one child even if there's only two mm-hmm. first of all are we taking a gift that doesn't belong to us are we buying and selling something commodifying children um based on the, the idea that we have a right to have that child and are we placing that child in in an environment that isn't safe in an environment that that child was never meant to be in um So I would say that those are the serious questions we need to ask about IVF, even when they're done in the really strict parameters of a husband's sperm, a wife's egg, just one or two babies, uh, max, never frozen, transferred right away. Um, That would be the first thing. Oh, I mean, and, and going, and this is obviously hypothetical. There's a lot of hypotheticals, but these are things that have happened. What if an embryo is created? And during that time where we're waiting for the embryo, just one or just two babies to develop, something happens and the woman's unable, you know, she gets in an accident, she's unable to now carry these children. What happens then? Mm -hmm. Right. When we take these children out of their natural context, all of these things can happen that we need to take responsibility for because we were taking responsibility for the creation of their lives. Um, Those would be the concerns with IVF in considering embryo adoption. Um, I think embryo adoption um, can be a beautiful way to reach out to the preborn children in freezers. I think any couple going through any type of adoption needs to really seriously consider all of the concerns that go along with it, right? Anyone who's gone through the adoption process of a born child knows that it's, it's, it's a difficult process. There's a lot of things that you need to talk about and discuss. I know people who have gone through this process, you know, they receive a checklist saying, you know, yeah, a checklist. What are you okay with? Are you okay with a child having Down syndrome? Are you okay with a birth mother having consumed this amount of alcohol? Are you okay with, you know, this type of disability, you know, 
this this type this skin color or this and you mm -hmm. have to essentially check which baby you're okay with and which one you're not um so there's ethical concerns in any type of adoption yep. um and embryo adoption is absolutely no different so i would say for couples who are are considering embryo adoption that it can be a beautiful thing and it can be done in an ethical way but i would really recommend looking into it thinking about it praying about it i mean considering all of the really serious questions that come along with with adoption for sure okay if i could play devil's advocate for some yeah. of the points you raised there um so i i like the, the line of thinking and i think it makes a lot of sense not being the devil just yet but i'll get there um, that the body is the dividing line, but I could see an argument being me where but the body is what? Sorry. Sorry. I didn't the dividing line kind of like, okay. as soon as you take, uh, the, the act of procreation outside the body, you are going away from God's design. And this is where you run into trouble. And this is where it gets ethically, uh, murky at the very least. Now, someone could counter that by saying, well, yes. Okay. So procreation does come outside, but it goes right back into, the woman's body and if it's successful it's, it's there for nine months and, and you know it's the normal process from there out uh and then also to your to your point about well okay if this is a hypothetical situation and there is an accident in between the time the embryo is made but not yet uh inserted back into the woman uh the, the same situation could happen if a life was inside the woman then the woman was in an accident or something happened you know god forbid and then there was a miscarriage so I think that that risk is also there uh, in a natural setting as well. So what would you say to someone who says, well, okay, so this is a slight aberration from the natural way of doing things for sure, because we start the process outside, but it does come back in. And this is just one more scientific tool that God gives us to help us uh, procreate. Right, right. No, and, and that, that, you know, crossed my mind as well, right? We're kind of like, okay, you know, someone who's, expecting this can also happen to them can also cause a miscarriage i think what the key difference here is is something that we have control over versus something we don't have control over and yes you know we can track our cycles we can watch as carefully as we can we can try to make sure that we're having intercourse on the days that are most likely to ensure that we will get pregnant but we never know for sure we're never able to completely control that, um, and and when when that conception happens, and further to that, so we have not. If if we do in fact get pregnant in that way, we can say you know okay we didn't have control over the creation of that life, and so you know we're not going to say never get pregnant because you could possibly potentially get into an accident, right? We would we would never say that. Mm -hmm. So so. Going going from that, whereas with IVF, we are taking something out of its natural context. And so even if we're only doing that briefly, we're still placing that child in a dangerous situation. So I would say there's an argument where, you know, women who are expecting shouldn't put themselves in dangerous, you know, situations. I mean, there's laws about whether or not we're allowed to go on a roller coaster, for example, right? You know, I, I know they, they say, you know, not recommended for pregnant women. There's a lot of things that they recommend we don't do so that we mm -hmm. don't put our children in danger. Um, yeah. So going back to that. Okay. So we shouldn't, if we shouldn't be placing our children in danger, that also can involve um, the danger we place our child when, when we're creating them in a lab. Mm -hmm. No, that's a fair argument. That's a fair argument. 
because yeah, it's it's certainly a higher degree of failure outside. Well, as far as we could tell, I guess. Um, hmm. Okay. No, that's interesting. That's okay, good... and sorry, sorry. Just to add to that, I think yeah. it, it's ultimately right. What's in the hands of God and what we're taking into our own hands. No, that's true. So obviously, you know, we can all, you know, there, there's been many women who have experienced the loss of a child through miscarriage, the loss of a born child through, through an accident or something like that. Um, you know, for example, like sudden infant death syndrome, you know, losing an infant in that way. Mm-hmm. We don't have control over things like that. But we don't say, okay, you know, don't have a child because of that. We recognize that God gives life and God can also take life. Um, and, and we're not forcing anything to, into existence that wasn't maybe necessarily meant meant for us to do. Whereas, you know, in, in, in the other situation, so so leaving things in, in, in the hands of God rather than taking it into our own hands, I would say that's the, that's the key difference. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. But it's certainly something, uh, yeah, to wrestle with and to think through as well. I can see that would, if I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of someone who's either gone through IVF or is thinking about it, considering it, it's definitely something to uh, to spend a lot of time thinking about, and praying about for sure. As uh, as we've discussed, I mean, it's been over an hour, I think, so far. And it's there's a lot to talk about with this issue. Um, maybe uh, can, I just, on, can I just sorry sorry can I just I'm saying for the for the people who have gone yeah. through IVF. Sure. Um, I do want it to say that this is not the, the purpose of having these conversations is not to condemn people, you know, who, who have chosen this route. Um, I would encourage anyone who has done IVF to consider these things, to pray about these things. And if they have any children remaining in the freezer um, to to essentially get them out as as fast as they can. But I recognize this is a really difficult situation to be in. And I know as a young couple who was in a fertility clinic ourselves, we know how quickly they push IVF on people and, you know, how they explain away any concerns that might initially be had. And so that's a difficult position to be in. And for many people, there's a lot of pressure, you know, why wouldn't you do it? Um, And in those situations, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's a really, really tough situation to be in there's there wasn't always a huge amount of discussion by christian churches about this especially in the past so in a lot of cases there was no information about the moral ethics surrounding any really any type of third-party reproduction but especially about ivf so i definitely think that we need to approach this this topic with grace obviously as well 100 percent for sure um on the on the positive side on the flip side uh can you Tell us a little more about uh, what the adoption process is like for embryo adoption. Is it um, is it faster than a typical adoption process that with the child who's born? Uh, like, what's all involved in there exactly? <laughs> okay, so going into that, people might wonder why I'm knowledgeable about the process. Well, actually, um, my husband and, and I adopted um, embryos, and our two two precious little boys were adopted. In this way, um, we adopted them through Nightlight Christian Adoptions. Um, so basically what the process looks like in for that agency specifically. Now, I know that there's different processes for different agencies. Um, and I really want to emphasize here to like look at what agency you decide to go with. Look at the process and make sure that the child, that the focus is on the child, that it's about the child receiving a safe home, that it's about the adoption process, so that we're focusing and making sure that we're treating the pre-born child in the same way that we would treat a born child. So through that process, 
specifically for that agency, but I know other agencies do the same thing. Um, there was essentially the same thing um, as, as traditional adoption in a lot of ways. So you would, we did education, um, you know, basically about adoption, how adoption affects a child psychologically, what it means for a child, um, some, some embryo adoption specific um, education, but mostly just about adoption in general, because we don't have a huge amount of specifics on embryo adoption at this point. Because as we said, it's, it's not, it hasn't been really well known um, until more recently. Um, so there's the education process, there's the home study process, um, you know, where someone comes to your home, they do psychological assessments of, of a couple, um, they talk to you together, they talk to you separately, they make sure your home is, is a safe place for a child, you need to get references from different couples um, who aren't related to you, um, full criminal record checks, fingerprinting, um, basically all, all of that, <laughs> all of the, the whole adoption process. And after that, um, obviously, oh, with embryo adoption, full medical history was necessary as well. So we needed full physicals to make sure that, that you're healthy as well, particularly in, in the case of, of a woman to, mm -hmm. you know, are you able to carry a child as far as they can tell, obviously they can't, they can't ensure everything, um, but they do everything they can, um, to ensure that, you know, you're as healthy as, as you can be. And then they move into the, you apply, you submit a profile, um, and then they, you know, start looking to find couples to match you with. So couples who have placed their children, um, their embryos for adoption. Um, so obviously going into this process, it's the same thing with, with as regular adoption, you know, they ask you what your preferences are. Um, so, you know, are you adopting a Caucasian baby? Um, are you adopting a, a black baby, Asian baby, any any of those things? So there's preferences there. Actually, over 90%, I believe it is, they say it's actually there's um, that are frozen in the United States are actually Caucasian. Um, and then they ask, you know, what number of embryos are you willing to adopt? Um, and, and basically a list of those things. They also provide when they, they match you with a couple, potentially they provide with full medical history. So you can look through medical histories and see if there's anything that that's concerning there. Um, for us, for our personal story, we didn't want to go into any of that. We really wanted to avoid picking and choosing a child as much as we can. Mm -hmm. And again, for anyone who's gone through adoption, that, that can be a really, really tough, emotionally draining part of the process. Um, because they're asking you questions that are really, really hard to answer. So for us, we were matched um with a couple and we we essentially just said, okay, you know, if we're matched, we obviously looked at it, we prayed about it, but we went into it with the assumption that what we were matched with, we were going to accept. And, you know, our fertility clinic actually told us that these babies were not um super healthy didn't give us the best chance of of having a healthy born child because of how long they'd been frozen and how they um and how they'd been frozen mm -hmm. um so all of those those things are not to say that someone has to do something in a specific way but are all serious considerations that we need to have and then from there the medical process is is a bit dependent on on how your clinic works and what they want you can try to do a natural cycle which is where you, you know, they just track your cycle really carefully. You're not taking, taking any type of medication or anything like that to build up your lining or anything like that. Um, 
they just let your body go through the nat natural process. Um, it's pretty intense because that needs like ultrasounds, I think, like every day at a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, and when when your your uterine lining is the, the level of thickness that it needs to be in order for a baby to safely be able to implant, then they'll transfer the embryos or thaw and transfer the embryos. Um, in, in another, in, in the other, the other way is basically more medicalized where a woman is taking certain medications that ensure that her lining builds up to a certain thickness. Um, and in all of these cases, um, that I, I don't know of, of a case where someone hasn't done it. it I, I wouldn't be surprised if it has happened, but in all of the cases that I know of, you know, after this point, women are taking progesterone, um, because, a pregnancy that is not a natural pregnancy, you know, a medicalized pregnancy is always more difficult on the mm -hmm. body. So this isn't, so it's essentially just to give the baby the best chance, baby or baby's best chance of survival that you, that you possibly can. Um, so that's essentially how the process works. Um, okay. I don't know. No, that was a lot of detail. I think it'll be very helpful to anybody considering that. Uh, can you tell us what the timeline was like? Like once you, you, you guys made the decision, like, okay, I think we're going to go forward with this. What was the whole timeline on it? Okay. So, so that would be very different depending again on, on where you go. Um, so for example, in, in Canada, the programs that do it, such as beginnings, family services, they're, <laughs> they're, it just isn't as big of a program. So there's not as many families who are placing their babies for adoption Mm -hmm. Um, so the wait times are often longer, whereas with, with the organization we went with, the wait times can vary. They said, it's generally speaking, what we got when, when we went into the process was they said about eight months. Um, but it ended up, I think it was like, I think it was like four weeks after we had submitted our profile and everything that we got the email saying that we'd been matched with a family. Um, so wow. that was surprisingly quick I've you know I know others who have gone through that process who had the same experience so it was it was very quick um and that's just because it's it's a program that's been along for, around for a very long time and a lot of people know about it they have a lot of connections so there's just more babies that are being placed um, and more people that are working through this agency so for us that process was quite quick um, and then it's just, yeah, they, they need to, um, in a lot of cases, they need to transfer the embryos to a different, different clinic because you might've adopted embryos from, for example, from Texas. So they're going to transport the embryos to a clinic that's nearer to your home. Um, so that needs to happen. Um, they also, you know, the fertil fertility clinic will, will look at the embryos. In some cases, there's actually been situations where families have been matched with embryos they, the, but the clinic that we're, they're working with refuses to accept them because they're not of a certain quality and clinics are really concerned with their success rates. Um, so hmm. there have been cases where they said, well, we just won't work with these babies, which is another problem, obviously, that, that these, these children face, that the longer that they're in the freezer, the more likely it is that no one will be willing to risk their success rates in order to rescue them. Um, so that, that wasn't, that wasn't our experience. It was an experience of a couple that, that we knew. Um, so yeah, the, the babies will need to get transferred to a clinic. Then there's, there's a couple appointments again, to ensure that your uterus is as safe as they can possibly tell, um, to transfer a child into, and then they start the process of 
basically getting you ready for that transfer. In a lot of cases, that's very similar to the medical process of IVF. So a lot of basically the drugs that uh, the, the, uh, that a woman would take in order mm-hmm. to prepare her body for, you know, children that she and her husband conceived through IVF, that would be the same sort of process someone going through um, embryo adoption. Um, unless, again, unless they their doctors are willing to allow them to, to go through the natural cycle route instead. Gotcha. So, oh, sorry. So, so for timeline, you, you know, it was about a, about a month for matching. Um, and then I think it was about a, a month or two for, for transporting the babies and signing all of the paperwork and all of that. Um, Cause there's obviously contracts that are signed by both, by both family. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I think it was, it was just really a couple months after that. And then we were expecting our baby. So it wasn't very long, um, a, a long process for us. Yeah. So we don't, and, and we know a couple as well who have done it in, in Canada and it wasn't a really long process for them either. So I think when you look at the wait times online and what, what organizations will say, um, from the experience I've had and the experience with the couples that I know the wait times have been shorter, but that's obviously just really dependent on how many babies are placed for adoption at, at one time. Right. Right. So it does sound like it's a bit uh, of a, I don't know about simpler, but at least doesn't take as long as a typical adoption process. Is that fair to say? Yes. Yes. Um, Well, right now I know speaking specifically for, for Canadians and, and Christian Canadians, because it's becoming more difficult for Christians to adopt um, through through more public agencies, right? Like, like CAS. Mm -hmm. Um, So if you opt for the private adoption list, I mean, I know for, for one example, um, the actual name of the, the Christian adoption agency is, is slipping my mind. It might've been beginnings, but they, they, they placed 15 infants in one year for, they placed them in, in adoptive families. So that was through domestic infant adoption, um, pri- privately. Um, and they had 75 couples on their waiting list. So that's really dependent on if, if, if a birth mother chooses you, right? So an agency mm-hmm. will, you know, you go through the, I, I would say the process of education, all of that, that we did through Nightlight would be somewhat similar to, to what you have to do to adopt in Canada. Um, but after that, after that, you've submitted your profile, the agency, you know, birth moms approach the agency um, and the agency will decide which profiles of their people on their waiting list they're going to present um, in a lot of cases, there's waiting lists to get on waiting lists right now. Like adoption has become really, really difficult. I think through COVID and stuff as well, it's become really difficult um, and, and difficult because a lot of women aren't choosing adoption, right? They're choosing, they're choosing abortion, which is, which is heartbreaking, but the reality of, of the culture that we live in and international adoption is, is essentially closed right now um, for Canadians. Like it's, it's really, really hard to do anything like that. I know couples who have, have gone to adoption counselors who have just said like, it's, it's not a thing right now. It's not something that can be done. A lot of countries have just closed down, um, that Avenue. So yeah, like you, like you kind of said, it's for, for going through the process, I would say, you know, from, from having a child, it's, it's, a lot of cases and the experiences I've seen, it, it has been faster. Mm-hmm. There's wow. just more babies. There's there's more babies that need families in this situation than there is 
um, born born children right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, that are willing, yeah, that people are willing to send to Christian homes for sure. Yes. Hmm. Sadly, well, enough. and that, and that, well, and that, and that, that you said willing to send to Christian Christian homes, right? When you're when you're adopting through CAS, I think it's largely dependent on the social worker that you get. But they've actually re- more recently split. People used to be able to foster to adopt, but they're really moving away from that. And now there's a foster list and an adopt list, mm-hmm. and they're they're really trying to make sure that that never overlaps. So that used to also be something that people used to do, uh, right? They they would start in the foster care system with the hope of eventually adopting the children that they foster. Um, yeah. But now that's again that's an that's an adoption list. You, you're not really able to do that in in the vast majority of situations now. Um, so so that has changed. They're also really really focused on placing children with parents of the same race. Um, which hasn't been so much in the past. So a lot of these parameters have really changed and made adoption a lot more difficult in the other ways. And then, yeah, and then social, it really depends on the social worker you get. If a social worker um, is really against the fact that you're Christian, um, that can veto your family right away for adopting through, through adopting publicly. Mm-hmm, for sure. Okay, well, I think we're getting near the close. I've learned a ton. <laughs> it's been uh, fantastic hearing from you. You've yeah, really helped, I think, uh, sharpen my thoughts on this issue. And now I know a lot more, especially about the adoption side of things as well. It's really nice to know that that's an option uh, for people out there who are looking uh, yeah, to pursue having children and are having difficulty themselves. And to know that, yeah, we can make an ethical choice here and we can help out uh, yeah, all these little humans who are, are out there, who are frozen, who who need our love and support and a, a place to call home. Do you have any closing thoughts for, uh, for our listeners on just this topic in general? Um, cl- closing thoughts. Um, I, I would recommend um, just some reading materials that I found really helpful. Um, so yeah, first the book by Stephanie Gray, I've actually have it right here um, just to show. Um, so conceived by science, uh, thinking carefully and compassionately about infertility and IVF, I found it um, really, really helpful, really thought provoking. Um, then I would uh, obviously recommend um, the book that my brother and I wrote. So the ethics of embryo adoption, life under glass. Um, for I think right now it's, it's one of the only resources I've been able to find about embryo adoption. There are two more personal stories, I believe that have been more recently published. Um, I'm, the name is, is is slipping my mind of what it's what it's actually called. Um, but basically Hannah Stragi, so the first snowflake, um, snowflake adopted child, um, her, her dad, John Stragi wrote a book. So that's a more personal story that's been out more recently as well. So I would just, I would just recommend those resources and then you know invite anyone who is thinking about this process if they want to reach out um, if they want to be connected with other people who have have gone through this process and to, to just really think and really pray when you consider this type of adoption and any type of adoption um, because there's there's a lot of really tough ethical questions that need to get answered and I really encourage those conversations. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, thank you for your time. It's been much appreciated. It's been a lot of fun. I hope, uh, yeah, and, and very educational too. I hope all our listeners were able to learn and, and grow from this episode. And uh, once again, as I said off the top, obviously a very personal subject. I hope we've covered it in a 
in a way that is uh, winsome and uh, sensitive to personal issues uh, around this topic. And I know if you have any feedback, please send it in. We're not trying to cause anybody any pain or whatnot. We're hoping that we can educate and uh, give people some clarity around this topic and let them know about the option uh, of, of embryo adoption that is out there. So with uh, without any further ado, I wish you all goodbye and we'll catch you on the next episode of Real Talk. Stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.